this year we are beginning our year-long series that you've heard about this today called The Fellowship of the Spirit's Sword, in which we will preach alongside our New Testament reading plan, all of us together united as a fellowship, engaging with and taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And each Sunday we will preach from a text that we read that previous week. If you're disappointed that we have closed our Romans chapter at chapter uh, Roman series at chapter 8. I, I understand that. That's what I understand. I, part of me is even disappointed a little bit, but uh, a bigger and better part of me is excited because I think this is truly going to help people be in the Word. And by the end of this sermon, I think you'll see just why that is so important to me and, and should be to all of us. And so, I can't start off preaching from a text that we read this previous week in our reading plan because we haven't started yet. We start our readings tomorrow. Uh, and so today I wanted to stoke this fire in our hearts for this endeavor. And that song we just sang, actually I never heard that song, but where it said, to sh where we just prayed to Jesus to shine through the shadows and burn like a fire. It reminds me of a story. Do you remember in Luke when, whenever Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to some of his discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus and he walks with them without letting them recognize who he is? Do you remember that story? But, and then he walks with them and what did he do as he walked with them? He taught them the scriptures and showed them how everything in the scriptures points to him. And then once he did reveal himself to them and then he left their presence and they reflected on what has just happened. Do you remember what they said to one another? They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he taught us and opened up the scriptures to us? They experienced burning hearts as Jesus opened up and applied the scriptures to their lives. And I want our hearts to burn within us as we internalize the word of God. I want us to be a harmony of hearts ablaze. And so to stoke that fire, I want to take us to the holy of holies in the scriptures, as I think about it. As a chapter tied in my heart with Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in the Bible, John 17. In John chapter 17, we are invited into a place that we have no right to be but have the incredible privilege of being brought into and welcomed into by Jesus and through his sacrifice. It's a place where we ought to take off our shoes because it is holy ground. And John 17 contains a glimpse of the divine dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. The Son of God pours out his holy heart to his heavenly Father and allows us the privilege to listen in to overhear and just pause a minute here and reflect on how significant this is for someone who wants to really know Jesus. Because I bet if you were told you were going to die tomorrow with 100% certainty, at some point during that last day, you're going to pray. Right? I bet 90% of people whether they believe in God or Jesus or not, they're going to pray. And those prayers would be a truer insight, I believe, into your heart and what you care about most than anything else you've ever said. 
If you could take a snapshot of just a few minutes of someone's life in order to get to know them as deeply as possible, as quickly as possible, and you had the magic ability to put them in whatever situation you wanted to, you could do no worse, no better than to tell them they're going to die and, and in, in mere hours and then listen in on their prayers. Those few minutes will give you insight into their heart in a way that it would take you years otherwise. And this is exactly what Jesus gives us for himself. And wonder of wonders, what we hear him praying for, mere hours before he goes to the cross, is for us. His heart bursts and overflows with concern and care and passion for us, his people. And what he prays for us on the verge of his gruesome, hell-bearing death in our place should be of utmost concern to us, shouldn't it? It should set our hearts ablaze. It should shape every concern and ambition and hope and dream. It should, it should be on our hearts and our minds and determine the contours of our life. This is the eternal maker of heaven and earth who took on flesh, condescending to be one of us, condescending further to bear our sin and death. And on the cusp of that most awe-inspiring act, he has his own hopes and dreams for us. And as he always does, he seeks his father's power and will, holding us up before him as his treasured possession. And I don't have the time to talk in depth about everything he prayed. But there's one point in this prayer where he makes it explicit, the fact that he is praying for you and me. And it's around that point that I want us to dwell. And we'll see just how very applicable it is to this series we are beginning this year. So I hope you've turned there to John 17. We'll start reading. And where we're going to start reading, he's right in the middle of praying for his, his disciples, some of the immediate people uh, that he's been spending all this time with. But about halfway through that, you'll see where he includes us in this prayer. And so let's start with verse, um, I actually want to start with verse 17, and we'll read through verse 21, just because I want you to hear these words first. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As we head into this new year with the resolve to read God's word together, I really want us to feel the weight of this passage. I want us to be inspired by the dramatic tension of this point in history, the urgency of it, the hope of it, the glory and greatness of it. As Christ faced his imminent crucifixion and prayed his greatest desires for us, he prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth of God's word. 
We're not being cute with this series. This isn't, a, this isn't just one more self-improvement box to check among many others. This is not a nice little additional add-on to a busy life. We're not playing a game here. We are aligning ourselves with Christ's own heart and hope for us. We are living out the prayer on our Lord's lips right before he died for us. As he and his disciples walked to where he would be arrested, he stopped and prayed to his Father in heaven, saying, I have given them your word. Now sanctify them with it. Use your word, your truth, to make them holy, is what he's praying. And then he says, to raise the stakes and significance of this even higher, he says, this is why he sanctifies himself. Do you know what he means by that? When he's talking about sanctifying himself or consecrating himself, he's talking about what he's about to do. He's talking about the cross. Even though this translation uses a different word in Greek, he uses the same word for what he's asking for us. Sanctify. He says, I sanctify them and this is why I sanctify myself. And this can help us understand what sanctify means. As you can probably already tell by how I've been using it, it means to make holy. Which helps us understand a little, but then what does holy mean? And with that, that word, we probably have mixed messages and jumbled ideas, but that's exactly why this text is so helpful. Because we see how Jesus applied that word to himself which might be a little surprising. He sanctifies himself. Because then we, if we understand what he means by that, we can see what he's wanting and praying for us when he wants to sanctify us. So we must ask the question, how could Jesus be sanctified? I mean, how could he be made holy? He's all, he, he couldn't become any more morally pure, right? He's already perfect in that regard. So how does he sanctify himself? And if we understand that, then it helps us understand what it means for us to be holy. So how does Jesus sanctify himself? He sanctifies himself by setting him apart, himself apart for one purpose. He's, he's aiming his whole life at the cross. He will consecrate himself there. His life is now set apart, distinct, it is in its complete commitment to this one purpose, this aim. And this is how he will make himself holy, how he sanctified himself. And this is what he's praying for us. And if we take this meaning of holiness, this complete and distinct purpose that subsumes our whole heart and is the bullseye around which all the rest of life is organized and aimed at, that if this is what Christ meant for his own sanctification, and he said that his sanctification was for the purpose of our sanctification. In other words, if you want to live well, you've got to know what you are for. Just like if you want to judge the goodness of anything, you must understand what it's for. What philosophers call its telos, its end or its aim, like a wristwatch. If you try and use it like a hammer... To hammer a nail, you'll think it's a very bad wristwatch and you'll make it even worse. But if you had known what it was used for, you, it might have been a very good wristwatch. So the question is, what are you for? What are Christians for? Knowing that is the only way to know how to be a good one. Again, you must turn to Jesus' sanctification to learn about ours. He sanctified himself by being a sacrifice. 
in, in his words, by giving up his own life for his friends. His sacrifice was offered to God for those that he loved. He utterly sacrificed his life to God for those that he loved. And the Apostle Paul learned this well, and he proclaimed this truth to us in a slightly different and helpful way. He said, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. A living sacrifice. To be holy, to be sanctified like Jesus is to be a sacrifice offered to God for the sake of others. His was a dying sacrifice. And you may be called to that. But Paul shows us that that's not the only way to be a sacrifice. We can live as such a sacrifice as well. To To the degree, and this is important, to the degree that everything in your life is offered to God for the sake of others, to that degree, you are holy. The process of sanctification is the lassoing of more and more aspects of your life and bringing them into alignment with this purpose. The biblical term that Christians of centuries past latched onto for this was godliness. The Puritans, like John Bunyan, who wrote the greatest Christian allegory, and Matthew Henry, who wrote one of the greatest Bible commentaries, and those in the movement they were a part of, they were relentless in their pursuit of godliness. They wanted every square inch of their life to be offered to God. And they refused to have things be a part of their life that they thought would not be a suitable offering to God. And when you read them, you get the sense that they were full of joy in a way that very few modern people are. And they were so full of love and commitment to others. We don't use that term godliness much anymore, but it's a good one. It hits the nail right on the head because godliness is Godwardness, God-likeness. And, and God is the most God-centered person in the universe. And he's also the person of the most self-sacrificing love in the universe. And these things are perfectly united in him. Our ultimate quest is for godliness. And Jesus says that the way we are sanctified like this, the means by which we are made holy, is the word of God. In accord with his high priestly prayer on the eve of his death for us, the way we are sanctified is by the truth. And he clarifies by telling us God's word is truth. It's only by God's word that we are made holy. And this is Jesus' hope for the word of God in our lives, that it would make us holy. But this is why it's so important for us to see what holiness is from this chapter. Because all all the things that we've just said, because you can't be holy for yourself. This is another main reason why I wanted us to start off by meditating here as we commit to reading scripture together because our culture is infected with this kind of self-help, self-improvement philosophy that's kind of like a disease that creeps into more and more of our lives. And then we approach the Bible like this. It's another checkbox on our self-help to-do list. And this is how we think of holiness as religious self-improvement. But you can't be holy for your own sake. Then you will never be holy. Because the whole essence of what holiness is, is being for God. It's being for God and because of that, being for others. 
Holiness is not self-improvement. We've lost the vision for how holiness is primarily for God. And, be, and even those who do retain such a Godward vision, they often lose sight of the equally important vision of how holiness is for others. How does my holiness affect those that God brings into my life? But Jesus' prayer corrects both of these things so powerfully and clearly if we listen to him well and submit ourselves to his words. As I've thought about John 17 and tried to pray for our church the way Jesus prays for our church, it has put a desire in my heart to see us sanctified by the word of God. We cannot become holy in the way Jesus wants us to be without a commitment to the word of God. Because that is his appointed means of setting us apart unto himself. If you're not taking time to regularly get to know the one who reveals himself through his word, then you are only worshiping one that you're crafting in your own image. And you may be set apart to your own purposes through that, but you won't be set apart to the true God's purposes for you. I sometimes hesitate to talk about spiritual disciplines as such because I know it can make us a bit too self-conscious and that self-consciousness can morph into drudgery or asceticism or legalism or pride or shame, which is why I wanted to take us all to John 17 so you could hear Christ's heart and remember that this is his prayer for you and to trust in the power of that and the love of that any discipline in order to be developed into the freedom of habit must go through a, a, a season of self-consciousness. And many of us will be there. We don't yet have the habit. And so we have to work at it now. And work and discipline is difficult. And you will fail in many ways. So it's important to remember Christ's prayer and and two implications of his prayer. First, that he's quick to forgive. Right? He's praying for you because he loves you. And second, that he's quick to give us the ability to follow him more faithfully. His prayers are powerful. He does not let us overhear this prayer so that we will be crushed with guilt and failure. This request that he makes for us to be sanctified by the word is a freeing grace, not law not harsh laws. These spiritual disciplines that God gives us are God's way of blessing us and leading us into strength and maturity. They're not his way of burdening us with guilt. He saves us from guilt. And we're not saved because we've always tried so hard to be good little Christians. We are saved by grace through faith. So in order to be sanctified by the truth, we must have two things. First is a vision of the value of the truth. That we see it as valuable. And second is a plan for submitting ourselves to it regularly. So let me take a, uh, talk about these two things in turn. First, Jesus' prayer about, ought to go a long way in revealing the, the value of God's truth to us. And second, our fellowship of the Spirit's sword will go a long way for that plan. But I want to dig into each of these a little bit more because we all, and I mean all of us, are regularly tempted to undervalue scripture. And when I want to dust off my own indifference toward it, there's a few people I think of. First, I think of, of, of Betsy and Corey Ten Boom, Christian women in a Nazi concentration camp for their sheltering of Jewish people. And listen to how she talks about their Bible in that concentration camp. 
says, as for us from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever widening circle of help and hope. Like waifs clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Betsy and Corey Timboom did not take God's truth for granted. And if you want to see a portrait of holiness, but sanctification through the word of God, read The Hiding Place, which is the book from which I lifted that quote. Another person I think about is William Tyndale. He was a man living in the 1500s and at a time where access to the word of God was limited and limited unnecessarily. And like those men on the road to Emmaus, his heart burned within him as he read the recently published and printed Greek New Testament. And he knew from then on that his life would be about one thing. He would translate the Bible into English from the original biblical languages. Around the same time Martin Luther was causing a stir in the religious world, Tyndale was talking with important Catholics about all that he was learning in his Greek New Testament. And one of the people, one of these important Catholics said in a frustrated way, he said, we were better without God's law than without the Pope's. And Tyndale replied in a way I love so much. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God should spare my life for many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. This was his driving passion for the ordinary Christian to intimately know God through his word. And he was so committed to this cause, he died for it. He was exiled from his home for many years. And when he finished his translation of the New Testament, he worked for years at smuggling it back into the English-speaking world. And at the age of 42, he was captured and strangled and burned at the stake. He gave his life that the English-speaking world of which you and I are a part could read the Bible for themselves. He died to make possible the thing we are talking about doing, reading the scriptures together in English. His translation has affected our world more deeply than we know. Many iconic phrases that we still have in our versions come straight from his work. Here's a few. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He went out and wept bitterly. In him we live and move and have our being. Fight the good fight. Think of Tyndale's heart to have the boy at the plow know more of God's word than important religious men. Think of his willingness to die that you and I could read it in our own language. And know that his life's passion was stirred by the spirit of him who prayed on Maundy Thursday that all of his, all that would be his would be sanctified by the truth. And then take this prayer of your Savior, your Lord, the one who died for you. With, with your sanctification in his prayers, on his lips and on his mind. Take that prayer in your mind and heart. And this afternoon, take time to plan. When? When am I going to read during my days? When during the days am I going to submit myself to the sanctification of my king? If you don't plan it, it won't happen. I'm telling you. 
Another important plan, part of the plan is how, like what do I read? And I've tri- we've tried to help you with that by giving you this reading plan and to take one consideration, one obstacle out of your path, but that won't solve all your problems. You still need to decide beforehand it, it, when and where you will read. Because if you're trying to figure it out on the fly, God's going, the devil's going to fling all kinds of, of considerations and distractions at you. And, and you need to be ready with a plan. And as we approach the Bible together, though, let us be expectant for God to do great things. Be open-minded, though, and open-hearted to his plan, not just yours. I've already touched on this, but I want to circle back, especially after addressing practical concerns like planning. We can be tempted to approach the Bible like it's useful, rather than approaching it like it's the words of our beloved I'm trying to get ahead of anyone saying, it's not working. It's not working. I'm reading it and I'm still sad. I've learned a bunch of stuff and I'm still struggling. The Bible isn't a magical shortcut. It's not a device. And if you approach it like that, you'll be disappointed. Let me tell you a story. Once Israel was losing a war against the Philistines. And after a particularly bad defeat... They wanted a little extra assurance as they went into their next battle. And so they decided, what would they do? They decided they'd take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. And if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's a gold-covered box, a gilded chest, which normally is in the holiest part of the temple. And it represented, in more than a metaphorical way, the abiding presence of God with his people. And so they thought, we'll take that Ark into the battlefield and then we'll win acting more out of superstition than out of faith, treating it like some magical talisman that they could use to coerce power out of God. And did they win that battle? No, they didn't. In fact, they lost worse than ever. And the ark was stolen. Your Bible, like the ark, is about a person. And you don't use a person. A person is not useful. Even though we are sometimes prone to, tempted to think of people like that, a person is not a tool. A person is one to be known and loved and walked with. Don't come to his words wanting to squeeze something out of it for your personal gain. Come to get to know him and to hear from him and to walk with him and to talk with him about what is on his heart and to love him and commune with him. And when you do, he will do with you whatever he wants to do with you. And as you know him more and more, that will sound like better and better news. Remember, holiness is about being his, giving yourself wholly over to him. And as you do, you will not be the same. But you're not yet fully who he's making you to become. And so your expectations may be a little different than his will for your life. In the Narnia books, uh, there's one called the, t- the Silver Chair that is incredibly helpful in giving us images for the spiritual disciplines. And one of the main characters in that book is named Jill. And her and Eustace Scrub have entered Narnia through um, asking Aslan to bring them there. And when she arrives... Aslan gives her a task which he says is the reason he called her there to Narnia. 
And she's confused because she says, could there be a mistake? Because nobody called me and scrubbed. You know, it was we who asked to come here. And Aslan says, you would not have called me unless I had been calling to you. And it's the same with reading scripture. You may think because you've planned for it and you've opened up the pages and read, it was you who initiated the meeting with God. But you would not be there if he did not have something for you. It's his agenda, not yours. But Aslan goes on and he gives Jill her task. And also he gives her signs by which he will guide her on her task. And he gives her a command and a warning before sending her off on her journey. He says this, he says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important for you to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Aslan's command to remember is one that we learn again and again. When we read the scriptures, the Psalms, which many of us will read this year on Saturdays and Sundays, often speak of remembering what God has done and said, like Psalm 77, which says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Remember, remember, ponder, meditate, he says. And if we can regain this biblical calling to remember, then it will shake us free from our use of forgetfulness as an excuse. Oh, I forgot. No, if we see this call to remember as a command of God, then we will take pains to not forget. And we will ponder and meditate and remember, remember the wonders of God. But Aslan's warning adds extra weight to this calling. He warns Jill that where she's going off to may make things seem less clear. And we all know this, right? When you're reading the word of God, when you're here in, the, in, in church listening to a sermon, when you're in community group, God's truth is vivid and clear. Trust him. Forgive. Be honest and kind and humble and chaste. But real daily life can make your choices seem messier and more complicated, can it? And your flesh, influenced by the world and the devil, has a way of leading your mind to actively forget and ignore what God has said about certain sins in the midst of temptation. This is why Aslan and Christ, whom he's a picture of, call us to remember, remember, remember by dwelling in the truth, reflecting on it, living it as a treasured gift from the leader and lover of our souls. And as this story goes on in the silver chair, this remembering of the signs that Aslan gave her, it becomes a group project between her and Eustace and Puddleglum. And this too is a part of Christ's prayer for us, that our belief in the truth is a group project our sanctification in the truth unites us in a powerful and profound way. Listen again to Jesus' prayer. He prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for this chain of events to happen in us and through us. He prays that we would be holy so that we may be unified so that the world may believe that God sent him. And we have said that sanctification like Christ's sanctification is a complete commitment to a single purpose. And when a group of people share that purpose, it's called a fellowship. We talk more about fellowship as a verb than a noun, like we fellowship together, but it's also a noun. We are a fellowship. We're called to be one. And this is where the rest of Christ's prayer becomes so incredible and so helpful to us because he prays that we may be one, even as he and the Father are one. That's stunning. And he also prays, as you continue and you read through John 17, he prays that he may be in us. We Christians believe that any any hope for our lives, any goodness that comes from us comes actually from Christ's life within us. We do not think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just like a mirror does not draw light because it's so bright, but only becomes bright as light shines on it and is reflected. When Christ speaks of his life in us, that's what he's speaking of. He doesn't just mean we're thinking about him or imitating him either. He means something much more profound, that he is actually operating through us. And us with a capital U. The whole unity of Christians are the physical body through which Christ acts in this world. We are his fingers and toes, the cells of his body. This is what we are for. We are for Christ to be in us and work through us in this world. This is who we are. You are each an integral part of a whole. And our goodness must come from him. Which is mere, he's not after just mere good-natured niceness. That's fine, but that's just a collision of, of relational and material and biological blessings that he's already given you. And that kind of gift cost him nothing. But the other kind of goodness, that's actually holiness and unity, that cost him everything. It, is, it cost Jesus the crucifixion. For yourself to be welcomed into his self, you have to share his life and participate in his love. He doesn't just want your niceness. He wants something far more expensive. He wants you to save your soul and make you what you were meant to be. Holy, a part of a grand unity. This is what holiness is. He only gives true holiness in conjunction with unity. That's the only kind of holiness he gives. A holiness with a profound unity with other believers. And notice who he prays this for. For those who will believe in me through their word. Their word, he's talking of the word of the apostles. The foundation of our fellowship is the word of the apostles. And this is what the church of the last 2,000 years has seen the New Testament as. As the authoritative teaching of the apostles to the church. 
the whole church, around the world until the end of the age. And this is why I think it's such a beautiful and fitting thing that we are doing this together this year in devoting ourselves in unity to the teaching of the apostles. We are those that Jesus prayed for who believe in him through the word of the apostles. And, and he prays for us that we may be one in Christ as Christ and the Father are one so that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. Our unity and fellowship is integral to our mission and our holiness is integral to our fellowship. And the word is integral to our holiness. So I want you to hear that chain, right? Our unity is, is integral to our mission. That's the first part. And then our holiness is integral to our unity. And then the word is integral to our holiness. And Christ knew all of this. So he prayed for the links of this chain to be strong. And he prays still, right? The Bible tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what the word tells us. And there's no reason to think that his heart and his prayers have changed all that much, much since then. We have the power of Christ's petition on our side in this pursuit. In a real way, our holiness and our unity are already true of us. That's one thing I want you to know, that, that this is already true. We are set apart as holy when we are saved. And we are united to one another in a true and enduring way when we are saved. Christ's prayers have been answered. And they will be answered in an even fuller way. But the question for us is, do we want to live in alignment with what our Lord prays? And strive to be who he says we are in him. That's the question before us. And I believe that all who have the spirit of Christ in their heart will answer that with a yes and amen. And we will stumble. But by God's grace, we will be lifted again. Let's seek him together in hope. Hope that he has done and he will do the work of our sanctification and our unification through the power of his word. Christ said this is why he sanctifies himself. This is why he went to the cross for us to be holy, for us to be his and to be united with him and therefore united with his father and united with one another. Christ's death was not in vain. It accomplished what it was for. It was the most powerful event in history. So let's trust in it. Let's trust in him today, tomorrow, forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray with Jesus that you will sanctify us by your word. That we may be one, even as you are one with him. I feel inadequate to even pray such a prayer. And so I let our Lord lead me. Let our holiness and unity lead the world to believe the truth. Make us worthy of your incredible calling and fulfill our resolve for good in every work of faith by your power. We pray with Jesus. Amen.